Hey friends, here we go. It's great to have you back here with me today. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. And as you may have already picked up from my accent, I am Australian. I currently live in Sydney, but I was born in Melbourne. Each week on this show, I sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness and much more to have conversations that can help all of us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Today, I had the absolute privilege of sitting down with Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn Jr., or S, or Essie, as he told me to call him. I was so fortunate to be invited over to have lunch with Essie and his beautiful wife, Anne Esselstyn. After lunch, S and I recorded a podcast which really covered his journey into medicine, when and why he became interested in the role food played in chronic disease, in particular cardiovascular disease, the clinical trials he has run, and their findings as well as the specific types of foods he recommends to eat and avoid if you want to prevent and reverse heart disease, which just so happens to be the title of his book. I'm going to leave this introduction nice and short because really this man needs no introduction. He is one of the absolute pioneers of lifestyle medicine, and it was a real delight to be able to hang out with him for the afternoon and and share with you a snippet of what we spoke about. In the outro, I'll close out this episode with a few extra comments about some of the other things that S and I discussed after our recording. Friends, I'll see you on the other side. All right, S, are we uh, are we doing this? I'm ready. <laughs> I've got a thank you before we get started. That was a terrific lunch. It was absolutely beautiful. So thank you to yourself and also to, oh. to Anne for having me here and, and serving up such a delicious lunch there. Imagine eating that way every day. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Anne says we eat very simply, but mm-hmm. I can tell you it was, it was nothing short of delicious. So thank you. I'm, uh, I'm definitely very thankful for that. Now I'm I'm looking forward to our conversation today to sure. to chat about this the remarkable contribution that you've you've made to not just science but but to the world. I think before we dive into that, let's just paint the picture of where we are to the listeners. We're we're in Cleveland, Ohio. How long have you lived here, and and what what do you love most about this place? <laughs> well, I love most about it is Anne. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> well, I mean, you're getting dinner tonight now. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Score some points. Uh, I've, I've actually, I moved out here in 1957 when I first went to medical school, and that's when I met Anne. And we were married in 1961, and we've been living in this house, actually, since 1967. So it's, uh, it's really home. We enjoy it. We love it. We like the street. This is where our kids grew up, and uh, yeah, it's it's home. Yeah, and, and Jane just popped in there. <laughs> is that does that happen a bit? Oh, it's how lucky are we to have our daughter and uh, her three children and husband living next door? It's great. Yeah. yeah, and we spoke before. You're you're a big sports fan, right? 
when it comes to sport and and Cleveland in particular, what sport do you like the most? And is there a certain team that you sort of follow regularly? Well, actually, I I think I mentioned that I like to watch uh, a lot of different sports. I don't have any one in particular, but I especially like to watch when it's in the playoffs, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, golf, tennis. I mean, that's, you know, the the nickel's on the drum. Boy, that's it. You know, you've got nobody else to look out for. You're going to have to do this and perform now. And it's it's really very exciting for, for me for, to watch the, the, playoff, the playoffs. And speaking of sport, I'm I'm heading down to see your son Rip in a couple of weeks now, and he's somewhat challenged me, I think, to a bit of a, a, a run and a swim. And I, I feel like it's a bit of a challenge because I've spoken to a few other people and they say Rip is incredibly competitive. <laughs> is, it, is there is there any truth in that? There's a, he has that wrinkle about him, yes. <laughs> but but that's all right. He, listen, he's uh, he's now 56 years old, so. If you're 20 years younger, you'll not have any problem. Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm going to get some practice runs and some swims <laughs> in this week in New York in advance. <laughs> Challenge him, you Simon, in lift, lifting weights. Okay. Yeah, you'll, you'll you'll bury him there. Yeah, well, we might have to make it a bit more than a run swim. We might do a run yeah. and swim, and then some some functional weightlifting. We'll see yeah. how we go. Um, but yeah, you, you. I mean, speaking of Rip, you must be incredibly proud of of everything that he's doing and and what he's achieved with Engine Two. Well, it's it's really fun to uh, to see uh, Rip sort of land on his feet and uh, transition from uh, the the finding in the high in the firehouse that most firemen were dying not from fires, they're dying from lifestyle. They eat terribly. They have such a high rate of coronary artery heart disease. And that was the motivating factor that took him to write the book. And once he wrote the book, uh, then John Mackey, who was CEO of Whole Foods, thought, this is the guy I want to be my spokesperson and ambassador. So uh, has led Rip to do these immersions for employees of Whole Foods and for the, and for the opens up for the public, trying to get more and more people to become aware of how lifestyle can impact their health. It's a wonderful story. And the, those immersions, I had, I had Adam Sud on the, on the podcast a week or two ago. And that, that immersion at Whole Foods is where he first heard about the power of plant-based nutrition and and essentially was like the pivotal pivotal moment that gave him hope. Yeah, Adam was made a remarkable transition, and he is, he is now a beautiful spokesperson. Now, Rip's not the only one, I believe, with a competitive streak. I, I know that you were a part of the 1956 Olympics, is that right? Tell me, and 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 actually a gold medalist. So I don't want to I don't want to sell sell yourself sell you short here. Like you 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 obviously were a tremendous athlete. Tell me a little bit about how you made it into the Olympic team representing America and what that experience was like. Well, it was it was rather interesting that uh, in 1956 in January, I was out here in Cleveland interviewing to enter medical school in September. And after the interview, the associate dean asked me a question. 
He said, if we were off, if we were to offer you a position in the incoming class in September of 1956, can you think of any reason why you would not accept? And since it was my first choice, I said, well, uh, no, I'm, I'm really, uh, I would be extremely pleased to uh, matriculate in, uh, in September. But uh, to be honest, there is one little wrinkle I should share with you. I said, I, this is my senior year and I, I enjoy rowing and I intend to continue to row this spring. And if, if for some reason we are really good, we could we could be good enough to enter the Olympic trials. And then, of course, if we could be good enough to be, beat everybody else and win the Olympic trials, we would have to go to the Olympics. And since the Olympics this year are going to be in Australia, I could not be out here in medical school if I was training with these fellows right up until November and December. And he smiled and said, why don't we worry about that if it ever happens? <laughs> so, lo, lo and behold, uh, we had a good crew and we did enter the Olympic trials. And it was interesting at the Olympic trials, we, we have a wonderful coach, uh, Jim Rashmit, who uh, we had to go through a number of preliminary heats. While we were out on the water training, a number of the coaches got together and changed the heat that we were in because they said that Yale, our crew, was in a heat that was unfair to the other, it was too easy for Yale. So when we got finished with our or training and their, our coach stepped out of the launch. A reporter came up to him and said, while you were out, Coach Rashmit, while you were out practicing, you know the other coaches changed the heat you were on. What do you have to say about that? And Jim just looked at the reporter and smiled and said, well, we came up here to really beat everybody and I, don't, I really don't care much in what order we do it. <laughs> That's the attitude. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, uh, we did... Uh, we did win, and then I immediately had to go. We had the summer off. I can't believe we never would have done that in this era, but we had the summer off, and I immediately had to go to Cornell to take organic chemistry, which was a credit that I was still lacking to qualify for, for medical school. <laughs> and after I finished that in the uh, uh, August, and suddenly September 1st, we went being seriously training again for uh, Australia through September, October, and then November, we took off and went to uh, Hawaii, then from Hawaii to Fiji, and from Fiji to... So that was the, that was the, that was the, route. the route back yeah. then. Okay. And then we uh, uh, landed in Melbourne, began our uh, a training, and kind of got to know a bunch of the other crews at, at Ballarat, living in this right. retired army barracks, these Quonset huts. What was your first impression like when you... you landed in Melbourne and, and Ballarat. I mean, looks, you, looks like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looks like, looks like the United States if they talk funny. <laughs> but, uh, we, uh, came to the, uh, the first event we hadn't raced. This is now November 22nd. We hadn't raced since the end, since June. And we were beaten soundly. We really got in race one. Yeah. We got, we got, uh, I think we were around third or fourth. The nice thing about rowing is that always for the first heap, because if somebody might break an oarlock and they've come thousands of miles or some other reason, you get what we call a repechage. And that in French, that means to fish again. But what it means is you have to row the very next day. Again, the, all the losers in the repechage, and we won. We began to get our feet under us and 
Because I remember that night after we'd lost, uh, although people were a little bit down, Rashmit again was great. He took us out on a walk, and he said, you know, one thing I ought to share with you, he said, I came to Australia for one reason, and that was to bring home some gold, and I know that I have the men and the crew to do it. <laughs> you know, just like that. And so we won the repechage, and that now immediately, the very next day, we had another race in the semifinal with those who had already qualified because they had, they had had a day off. So we were up against Australia, and Australia was the one that really we were worried about most in the semifinal. So a number of us went flat out. We, we won by just maybe eight or 10 feet. But uh, a number of us, as happens when you put, go that hard, lost our lunch. That is, we, we, we left part of us in Lake Wanduri. And that was when an Australia reporter almost won the, won the race for us the next day because we obviously, the first two finishers qualified for the final. And in the final was Australia, the United States, Sweden, and Canada. This reporter from Australia had said in the headlines on the morning of the finals, silly Yanks, overextend and will lose to Australia because we, so at the starting gate, we have a tradition where the coxswain shakes the hand of the stroke. The stroke turns around, shake, shakes the hand of number seven, seven turns around, shakes my hand, I turn around and shake Charlie, Charlie turns around, shakes Don. And this brassy Australian five guy, actually a nice guy, but he leaned over while we were doing this and said, I say, Charlie, haven't you met Don yet? <laughs> you know, so who is this guy who's mocking our tradition? <laughs> so immediately, just before the start, our ad adrenal gland had a big squeeze, and we uh, usually we dropped off at the at the start because they always about spinned us. But at the end of the first quarter mile, we were right there with them. <clears throat> they and, knew it was going to be a good race, and we knew this was going to be a. Uh, this could be this could be interesting, and then we began to eke it out. And then our coxswain did some crazy things. He he is he was very foxy. He would say, "Now power ten. Now power ten is when you really hit it hard. Everybody hits it hard for ten strokes." And he said, "You got me a man." Meaning, uh, as in comparison to where we were next to Australia, we had gained a man on them. But that wasn't the truth. We had gained two men, but he only told us we'd gotten one man. Keep you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> and that he did that a couple other times. And then finally, they really said it home. He said, I want 20 for Jim, our coach. 20 for Jim. 20. We, <laughs> we can find 20. So we did. And, and by that time, and nobody's allowed to look out. But some of the people did. I never looked out of the boat. I just, my timing was right off the neck of Rusty. And... Uh, but I, you could tell from the noises that we were we were doing all right, and then about with about oh I suppose a little bit less, maybe than two or three hundred meters ago, our Beckley and our coxswain began to yell out. He said, "You're gonna win it! <laughs> You're gonna win it!" And uh, that that was enough to. What did that feel like? There's nothing quite like it. It's uh, it's indescribable, especially when you're when you're doing it as a team. And you and these are eight eight guys that you live with for very close for so long. And since then, we used to have our reunions every five years. But now, since a number of people have gone to the big meadow in the sky, we're now down to three. 
but we've been having our reunions at our farm in upstate New York for the last 12 years, which is really a, a wonderful opportunity to continue. But the bonding is pretty powerful. And uh, is this something that you do you think about it regularly? Like just in your everyday life, do you often? Oh think no. About it? <laughs> no, 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 oh, no, absolutely no. There's too many other things going on, but that it comes up not uh, not infrequently. Yeah. So you you went to Yale. Let's let's come back to that. But before university, what was life like for you growing up as a kid? Where where were you? Well, I was on the farm. I grew up on the farm and helped out with all the farm chores, the tractors and the haying and, and so forth. Uh, we don't have any cattle or any livestock on the farm now, but uh, at that point when I was growing up, I had no idea that the products that we were producing of dairy and meat were harming people's health. But <laughs> then I, uh, I did go away to a preparatory school before going to Yale at, at Deerfield Academy. Again, it was an opportunity to, to meet some absolutely wonderful young men who have uh, who have remained friends. Now that uh, now that we're getting a little bit more senior, uh, the, the sad part of it is that you see the uh, these friends dropping off. Yeah, you said you didn't really, I guess, understand the health effects that some of these foods that came from farming were having on humans, right? And and you also spoke to the to the point of of losing some of your lunch during that race, right? What was, what was your typical diet like? Oh, just, just, you know, meat and potatoes and gravy and vegetables and salads and, and all the, all the things that we were told were, told were pretty standard, to standard stuff. Oh yeah. And, and then the, what was your inspiration to want to go and learn medicine and become a doctor? Well, my dad actually had been a, a general surgeon and he had a, a wonderful sense of commitment to the profession and to the patients. And I had a great admiration for my father uh, from that particular standpoint. And uh, it was, a, you could just see his, a great sense of reward when you were doing something to uh, help the health or the well being of somebody else. And it was quite uh, possible to do that without money or without anything else just with with knowledge information and uh and, and a lifestyle but that that wasn't when i went into nutrition that didn't happen until i was almost about 20 or 10 or 12 years into my life as a surgeon because as my as my surgical responsibility i was chairman of the breast cancer task force and it was probably uh that more than anything else that uh got me curious because for no matter how many women I was doing breast surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. And that led me to a bit of global research. And it was quite striking that breast cancer rates in other cultures were significantly, sometimes 10, 12, 50, 40 times less than the United States. What's going on here? For instance, if that's in Kenya, if you looked at uh, rural Japan in the 1950s, breast cancer was very infrequently identified. And yet, as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States, but the second and third generation, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. And if you looked at Japan in the 1958, how many autopsy proven deaths were there from cancer of the prostate? Entire nation, 18 one of the most mind-boggling public health figures I think I've ever encountered. 
1978, 20 years later, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die this year from prostate cancer in this country. So, And, and at, at that time, because this is, this is before the internet, right, how, how were you accessing this research and how were you able to look into the findings of these studies from overseas? Well, you just kind of go through the library and, and look up things under the uh, area that you're curious about. But after the uh, interest in what was going on in Japan and the prostate, it dawned on me that maybe there would be a bigger bang for the buck. For the buck, if we could look at the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization, which was coronary artery heart disease, because I guess the the dream was if we could get people to eat to save their heart, they would also lessen the likelihood of having the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and even perhaps pancreatic. So. That's how that got going. And then I uh, I felt that I had to do this study. And I've wondered if I could get a number of patients who were seriously ill with heart disease and get them to eat plant-based nutrition, see if we couldn't halt their disease progression, maybe get some reversal. Because that had been shown in animal studies. And uh, that began in 1985 when I went to the Department of Cardiology asked for about 24 patients. By this time, Ann and I had tried this for close to a year, and we saw our own numbers more remarkably uh, improve. When you say your own numbers, like like cholesterol. Cholesterol, and exactly. Like and this is the start of what we now know as the Cleveland Nutritional Trial? Is that? I don't know what it was ever called. Cleveland Clinic that. Nutritional Trial? or It was really these 24 patients they had either failed their first or second bypass. They were, they had failed their first or second angioplasty. They were too sick for these procedures or they had refused. There were five who were told by their expert cardiologists they wouldn't live out a year. Those four made, uh, those five made it all beyond 20 years. And it was really quite striking to, to see what was happening to these patients fairly promptly because my, concern was that since I was not a trained psychologist, the, the biggest hurdle I felt would be compliance, because I was asking these people to make a rally, really very significant lifestyle change. Change their behaviors. And I decided to use for that study the same mantra that I had been using for my cancer patients, which is something I had learned some years ago from a wonderful West Coast surgeon by the name of Bert Dunphy. And Bert used to say that patients with cancer are not afraid to suffer. And patients with cancer are not afraid to die. But patients with cancer are afraid of being abandoned by their family or by their physician. So for the first five years of the study, I saw this, these patients every two weeks in the office, went over every morsel they ate, checked their weight, their blood pressure, and their cholesterol. At the end of five years, I got more courageous and I stretched it out to once a month. And then at the end of 10 years, they were now pretty well on autopilot. So I stretched it out to quarterly and then wrote it up uh, after 12 years. And 12 years made it, I think, about the longest study of its type in the medical literature, because when you think about it, that's almost half a career. But it was exciting to see what was happening to these patients. And not only did we stop 
their disease, but we often found elements of significant disease reversal. How do you measure the reversal? Is that through certain imaging or? Well, that actually is to bring you up to speed. Uh, then the way we were measuring it was actually when they had follow-up, follow-up angiograms. When a, but there are, there are probably about eight ways you can measure reversal. One, the angiogram we talked about. Two, this, they can repeat their stress test. They can see reversal with that. You can see a reversal with what we call a PET scan. A PET scan will show the areas of the heart muscle that are being well perfused at baseline and then a, a patch where perhaps it's poorly perfused. You repeat that. In our case, we found that we can repeat it in three and six weeks and show now new perfusion in that previously poorly perfused area in, in as short a time. That's quick. As three to six weeks. It's pretty, and it's exciting and it coincides as the patients lose their angina or their chest pain often with that. So you can measure with ultrasound of the carotid artery, you can show reversal. You can show reversal with measuring pulse volume of the extremity. You can show reversal with the symptoms of angina, claudication, and erectile dysfunction. And so uh, that's pretty much how I think you can get really your hands on some evidence of uh, clearly a reversal. The result of the uh, first study, we we were uh, quite elated and very excited. And it was a, actually, it was, although we were excited with what we were getting, Dean actually uh, uh, reported after one year in 1990 and 91, and I was much too timid to report after one year. I waited for at least five years, and it was in 1995 that we published uh, our findings. Dean, I want to talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, with a credit, to, credit to Dean. But it was kind of fun that we were, had sort of spontaneously, you know, without even knowing each other, had sort of sprung upon this idea. And I think that there, it's it's really reassuring and very exciting to have a kindred spirit with her shoulders to the, to the, to the wheel trying to make the same thing happen. But we got hit pretty hard, but people were criticizing, well, you know, this is not a randomized study. Uh, this is a study that is small. And, uh, you know, what, what makes you think you can take a larger group, get them to do it with a, with a strict extreme diet and, uh, and get similar results. So we did it. <laughs> this time, 200 patients, two were lost to follow up. So 198 of that 198, 177, 89.3, almost 90% adhered close to four years to our program. And uh, we got really, again, very exciting uh, results. We had one patient in the compliant group who had a small stroke while in China, misbehaving, but there were no uh, heart attacks and no yeah, well. uh, no deaths in that group during that time period. And and. and and so by having some compliant and non-compliant, it's almost essentially like a, a randomized control and a, in a, to a point where you can compare well, people that didn't didn't do the, the lifestyle. Well, the, other, the, other, the, the bigger picture I think to look at is, I think it was Fryman who won a Nobel Prize for Physics who said, the scientific method is pretty straightforward. You propose a theory, A. Next, you do the experiment, and the experiment is either right or it's wrong. And if you were to say, well, 
Suppose we were to take a patient with heart disease, ask them to eat plant-based, see if we could stop progression of the disease and achieve reversal. And you do it once, and you do it twice, and you do it 10 times, 30 times, 40 times, 50 times, 100 times. I don't think it has to be prospective and randomized. If you look historically at some of the magnificent things that have happened in medicine, let's take it back to Jonathan Snow, who took the handle off the Broad Street pump in London when uh, he thought that it was important because he noticed that in the Thames, the, the sewage was coming <laughs> in from the Thames upstream and perhaps contaminating the well. No prospective randomized study. Along comes Morton in 1849, 50, and we have what? Discovery of ether. Was it prospective and randomized? <clears throat> then we get into Semmelweis and Pasteur and Lister and Theodore Koch. Koch's postulates. Where's the randomized trial? So you have all these wonderful things happening. Then we have Landsteiner, who discovered the bud groups. Was that randomized? What about Banting and Best in 1921? Those Canadians who discovered insulin. Was there a randomized study? Or how about Foley and uh, Alexander Fleming, penicillin? Or more recently, the, the Australians who discovered Helicobacter pylori. So, so why do you think there is this, you know, general notion of of randomized controlled trials being the the, the pinnacle of, of of science? Is that is that more you know somehow related to pharmaceutical or where where exactly. does this come from? Yeah, yes, yeah, so it's interesting. You find out there's a great deal of money, but it's often an industry funded study, as people are looking for. But I think you can still advance medicine by looking carefully at observational studies as well. And, uh, and also, I think that it would almost be impossible with nutrition to have the equipoise to be able to do that study. For instance, if you took 1,000 patients and said, we were going to randomize you between coronary artery bypass surgery and nutrition. Now, even in the best of hands of those patients, any of them are over 80. Let's say they're all over 80. That's a 9% mortality. So that would mean 9% of 1,000. And that's what? That's almost 90 patients who will be dead just from the intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, anyway, I think we can get, yeah. we, I think we've got that information now. I mean, it's one thing to want to do a study, but if you just look at the epidemiology, where is the coronary disease in Okinawa, non-existent, or rural China? Central Africa, the Papua Highlands, Tarahumara. What happened uh, in uh, Finland to Northern Karelia, which was the heart attack capital of the world in 1972? All those returning World War II vets got, were given land and property and lumbering and everything they ate had butter on it. You had butter on your bread, you had butter on your cereal, you had <laughs> butter on your beans, you had clotted cream, Pekapuska, a remarkable young physician, went up to Northern Karelia. So embarrassed by this, he worked hard to get them to stop smoking, worked hard to get them to change away from animal foods and dairy products, and had about an 80 to 85 percent less decreased incidence of cardiovascular disease over the next 35. That, that was years. an incredible study. Oh yeah. So you know we've we've got some examples out there of what we can do because right now the uh, 
in this country is such an embarrassment that we have erected a billion dollar health industry around an illness that does not even exist in half the planet. How, uh, how big of an issue is it here in America if we're, if we're looking at it from a numbers point of view? It's enormous. It's enormous, whether it's, whether it's 250 to 300 billion. Yeah, it's 45% it's of Medicare is cardiology. And what is cardiology, sadly, today? Cardiology is the is it is in a real challenge because they are not treating the causation of the illness. And really, since the days of Hippocrates, there's been a basic a basic covenant of trust that whenever possible, the caregiver will share with the patient what is the causation of the illness. And sadly today, in cardiovascular medicine, that's not being done, not because of malice of forethought, but because cardiovascular medicine in medical school and in their postgraduate training receives a practically zero insight into the causation of the illness that they've been designated to treat. And there's just this, this is a cocktail of drugs that they use uh, or stents or bypasses, and uh, they'll never end the, the epidemic. It's oh. a stopgap patch job. You know? A band-aid. And I want to jump into the underlying causation, the pathology in a minute, but mm -hmm. back, back to your trial, right? These 198 patients, majority of them were able to adhere to this diet, which as you were saying, others were saying is extreme and, and people may not be able to, to sustain a diet like that. A couple of questions on that. What, what, what were the actual tangible differences that you noticed between those who adhered and those that didn't in terms of health outcomes? Of the 21 who didn't adhere, 62% right? had further progression of their disease in that time period. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and in the, you may have already mentioned it, but it, so in the other 177 who were compliant, who complied. one small stroke, and that's it. Guy missing uh, uh, over in China, misbehaving, totally eating off the economy. <laughs> wow. So it's a stark contrast in, oh, yeah. in terms of the. Oh, I compared our results with some of the better known trials in medicine, whether it's the Leon Diet Heart Study, the Mediterranean, the Natural History of Coronary Artery Disease Study out of Columbia Presbyterian, and Bill Bowden's Courage Study. They're all somewhere between 19 and 24% at four years of major cardiac event, heart attack, stroke, or death. We had over a 30-fold difference. Ours was something like six-tenths of a percent. 30-fold difference. What accounts for that difference? Our patients were being counseled about the causation of their illness. They stopped eating the foods that we're giving them. Mm. Let's go through that. So yeah. what, what is the, the underlying etiology, pathology behind coronary artery disease? Yeah, I think the, the thing that's important with heart disease, there are going to be more and more and more, many, many, many more molecules discovered in this whole process of oxidative inflammation. But let's really try to keep it simple because I think that's important and it doesn't lose uh, anything in the uh, translation. The area where all experts would agree that where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning, is when we progressively injure the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessel, which happens to be that delicate innermost lining, the endothelium. And the endothelium manufactures a truly magic molecule of gas, nitric oxide. And it's nitric oxide that is the great protector and salvation of all of our blood vessels because of its 
remarkable functions, like number one, nitric oxide. Nitric oxide keeps all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro, keeps things from ever getting sticky. Number two, nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, your arteries to your legs, they widen, they dilate, that's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide will protect the wall of the artery from becoming stiff, thick, or inflamed, protects us from high blood pressure, hypertension. Number four, I always say that number four is the absolute key. A safe and adequate normal amount of nitric oxide will protect us all from ever developing blockages and plaque. So literally everybody on the planet, whether they are from London, Berlin, Chicago, New York, Australia, Missouri, wherever, if they have cardiovascular disease by now, they have so aggressively injured in the previous decades, they have so injured their endothelial function, like that has been compromised, it has been train wrecked. So you no longer have enough nitric oxide to protect yourself from making these blockages and plaque. And yet the good news is this, it is not a malignancy. And once you can get patients to understand how they have injured their endothelium, and get them to never again have any morsel past their lips that is going to further injure the endothelium, then it recovers and makes enough nitric oxide so that once again you can halt disease progression and at the same time you can often see significant elements of disease reversal. Now, what are the foods that every time they pass your lips you injure your endothelial cells? They are one, any drop of oil. Olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. Oil injures endothelial cells, as does anything with a mother or a face, meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, and eggs, and anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt, and sugary drinks, diet colas, pepsis, and coke, or Sugary foods, cakes, pies, cookies, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. And I don't like avocado or nuts for patients who have heart disease. Too much saturated, saturated fat. And I don't like them to consume coffee with caffeine. Decaf is okay. Tea with caffeine, apparently okay, but not coffee with caffeine. So those are sort of the, the ground rules. And uh, what are people going to eat? Well, you're going to eat all these marvelous whole grains for your cereal, bread, pasta, rolls, and bagels, 101 different types of legumes, lentils, and beans. All these marvelous red, yellow, and green leafy vegetables, sweet potatoes, white potatoes, and some fruit. Now, for the last, for the last seven years, we've added something else that I think is very powerful. If I can ask the patient to imagine shrinking their head to a size that you could crawl inside the artery, you would see that that plaque is an absolute cauldron of oxidative inflammation. So we need antioxidants, but no, do not go down to the health food store and buy a jug of pills that says antioxidant because it doesn't work and it's going to be harmful. I need you to get your antioxidants from food. Fair enough. What food? Food that is high in what we call ORAC value, O-R-A-C, oxygen radical absorptive capacity, like 
For example, if you're having raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries on your morning oat cereal, that's a terrific start. However, nothing can trump the antioxidant value of green leafy vegetables. So I need you to chew, not smoothies, not juicing. I need you to chew six times a day a green leafy vegetable that is approximately the size of your fist after it has first been boiled in water five and a half to six minutes, so it's now nice and tender. And then you must anoint it. You must anoint it with several drops of a delightful balsamic vinegar. Why? Because the balsamic vinegar has acetic acid. The acetic acid restores the nitric oxide synthase enzyme contained within the endothelial cell responsible for making nitric oxide. So you're gonna chew this alongside your breakfast cereal, again as a mid-morning snack, again with your luncheon sandwich, that's three, Mid-afternoon, four, dinner time, five. God, I adore it when you have that evening snack of kale, six. <laughs> well, we had some before, huh? And uh, so what are the greens that I'm talking about? They are bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard green, beet greens, mustard green, turnip greens, napa, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula, and asparagus. And the top five are kale, Swiss chard, spinach, arugula, and beet grains. Now, there are other two other functions that the greens do. One, they stimulate your bone marrow to produce more endothelial progenitor cells, which are what? They replace our worn out, senescent, injured endothelial cells. And number three, when you are chewing that green, you are chewing a nitrate. As you chew the nitrate in your mouth, it is going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue. Those bacteria will reduce the nitrate you are chewing in your mouth now to a nitrite. When you swallow the nitrite, it is further reduced by your gastric acid to more nitric oxide. So you're really getting a, a tremendous bonus of restoring so that's why you, yeah. you have to chew it rather than having it into a smoothie. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And the boiling, uh, so yeah, the boiling part, right? Yeah, but you can't, I can't ask people to eat turnip greens without raw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but boiling is the best way to cook them? Probably. Yeah. yeah. Five and a half, six minutes, sure. Okay. And the, from your experience, right, one of the, one of the things that you said earlier was people suggesting that this type of diet for patients may be seen as extreme and hard to adhere to clinically in your trial. And, and I mean, you're still, we were talking earlier, you're still, you're still seeing patients now. How are you finding their willingness to accept these changes? You know, it's not that the message is wrong that people complain or compl will say, other physicians will say, I don't know how you get 90% compliance. He said, I can't get patients to do this. And I say, well, how much, time do you spend with them? Oh, well, Dr. Esselstyn, you have to understand that I'm a very busy clinician. I, you know, I said maybe 12 or 15 minutes. I said, if you think you're going to change somebody's lifestyle in 12 or 15 minutes, you have been smoking something. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Well, I mean that, but that's, so, is that a big problem with the system? Because a lot of, a lot of doctors probably only have you know, 15 minute. They have, no, right? no, they, well, they'll do it. My friend Osfeld, when Osfeld came out to find out what we were doing here seven or eight years ago, he went back and took the whole thing full lying a sinker. He didn't make a 10 minute, 15 minute visit. He sees the patients all Saturday morning. I happen to do it on Fridays. 
But if you're a busy clinician, take off Wednesday afternoon, make that the time that you want to spend with your patients who need this message or send them to us, <laughs> you know. But lifestyle, the reason that you're going to succeed is if you show a patient respect. And the only way that I know to show a patient respect is to give them my time. So we give them six hours. We do this in a group, usually between 12 and 14, always with their significant other or spouse in attendance. That if you're going to make this kind of lifestyle change and you try to do it without the spouse, uh, it's, it's going to be really challenging. Both parties have to know the science and the justification behind it. And the other thing, uh, my secretary, for instance, will give me a list of who's coming 10 days or two weeks beforehand. And I'm old fashioned enough that I insist on calling every one of those people myself so that I can get my arms around their story before they come to our seminar. Uh, and at the same time, they have an opportunity to ask questions of me so that when coming to the seminar, we have a strong platform from which we can all move forward. And, and we know how we now have already established a relationship. I, I do uh, have a little fun with them <laughs> when we come to the endothelial cell, because I spend about an hour or an hour and a half on the endothelial cell and its relationship to their disease in nitric oxide. And obviously by the end of that hour and a half, they now know damn well that the reason that they have their, had, had their heart disease and a heart attack is because they had destroyed their endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide. So you can say to them, look, there are, how many of you are going to continue to go out and eat? Fine. Well, if you're going to eat out, there are four reasons to eat out. One is you don't do the cooking. Two, you don't do the dishes. Three is the ambiance. Four is the companionship. But you never, ever go out to eat to further destroy endothelial cells. And when you tell the waiter or the waitress you're deathly allergic to a drop of oil and they struggle on the menu, they can't find it, you say, I'd like to see the chef. Chef comes out, you say, I can't, I can't have oil, can't have sugar can't have dairy, can't have meat. And the chef will smile and say, I'll be back in 23 minutes with your evening. Here comes beans and rice or a baked potato with vegetables. It can be done, but you cannot ever further destroy your endothelial cells. So that's the first hour. You really drill home that message. Oh, yeah. And what's the, what's the rest of that six-hour session look like? Well, it's kind of a, a mostly a... a uh, after we've gone through that, we talk a little bit about the present methodology that cardiology is using, about the fact that the medicines are mostly all for symptoms. There's no medicine is treating the causation of the illness. The stents don't treat the causation of the illness. Bypasses don't treat the causation of the illness. We go over bypasses, we go over the pluses, the minuses, and the fact that with patients who have been told they have to have bypass or a stent, if they're willing to make this type of lifestyle change, I would say 99% of the time they don't have to have the intervention. Yeah, don't have Wow, that's those. incredible. Oh yeah, that's not necessary. You're treating the causation of the, because I can, I can, that's so exciting when you deal with patients with angina, because many of them have had it for months and years, and suddenly it starts to go away. Within four to six, eight, 10 days, it's markedly diminished or it's gone. And they said, oh my God, now they, you've got, they, you've absolutely got them hooked. Mm, yeah. That's, that's super motivating. I can oh, yeah. Oh, it's great. 
And one and the other, you asked what we do there, and also we, uh, I go into the, the sort of the history of how these th things were developed, and we go over the course the epidemiology of the disease, and we see what happens in other areas where people are eating plant based. Uh, I go into the in some depth into the two studies. Then we have uh, this delightful plant based luncheon, and we always have. Uh, several local or regional participants who've had a previous successful experience who have become very articulate in sharing their story. And it is so powerful after I give the science and then Anne has an hour and a quarter going over the food, then we have lunch and then come our speakers. And it's so nice for them to see the science, see the practicality, and then suddenly say, my God, it actually works. And I can imagine that Anne makes the, the food component pretty fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, outside of the food, do you touch on on other aspects of, of lifestyle, things like stress or exercise? Are these important parts of uh, reducing one's risk of cardiovascular? I, don't, I do not spend a lot of time on, on stress. I, I've not seen that uh, hold us up any uh, from getting results. I think it's a bonus, and uh, if people want to uh, relax or meditate, uh, we certainly in, in, encourage that, but it's not a it's not an integral part of the program. Exercise does get some uh, mention, in when, especially when it comes to avoiding the sarcopenia, and also in terms of the ability to avoid cerebral atrophy. You don't want see that you can grow as you get older with exercise. You can grow two parts of the brain the hippocampus, memory, frontal lobe, executive functioning. I guess that's why I keep riding the bike. <laughs> I was talking about that before. You went out, how far did you ride this morning? 10 miles. 10 miles. But much of it is in the, the hills. So I get my pulse and respirations get into the red zone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned the blue zones before, right? No, I didn't. You didn't mention the blue zones? No, no you mentioned Okinawa. I did. Yeah. Was that, you didn't mention blue zones. Was that on purpose? I think the blue zones is interesting. Tell me, tell me what you think about that. I'm not sure all the data are in. I mean, in the blue zones, there are people who are having heart attacks, right? Not as much, not as few. I think that the, uh, the message, uh, there as much in the message of the blue zones, it can be positive, but uh, eating plant-based and, uh, I think is strong and exercising right up until you, you know, your senior years is important. Well, I mean, the only, the only blue zone, I guess, which has kind of been validated to some extent with the data, which is coming out slowly is the Loma Linda population, which has people in it that do eat a plant-based diet. But the other, the other four areas, to my knowledge, ha haven't been validated yet in terms of yeah. like actual big studies with data. I don't. I don't like to denigrate other people's studies. So, uh, but I think it's. I think it's an inter interesting observational study. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, maybe something else will come yeah. of it in, in the future. Yeah. Where do you think the the answer is to preventing and reversing cardiovascular disease from a big picture point of view? Right for this message to really hit home and reach the masses mm. and and see behavior changes across the world different populations filtering down all the way through to the way that kids eat. Where do you see those changes being made? 
I think there are a number of ways to look at it. One is that I'm pretty happy and was proud to be asked four years ago to join the American College of Cardiology. Kind of unusual for a retired general surgeon. <laughs> but they wanted me to be part of their nutrition committee, which I've done. I've been very happy to help. And one of the things the nutrition committee has spelled out in spades is how poorly educated cardiologists are about nutrition. And that's that's gonna be a tough one. Even on the on the committee, it's acknowledged that it is it is it's a tough it's a tough sell. And as let's be honest about it. What's your income when you do a stent versus when you talk about Brussels sprouts and broccoli? Mm-hmm. What's the motivation? So it's a it's it's tight. Really got some hurdles to it. But what will happen, I think, eventually is the science will absolutely prevail. And when these organizations will really begin to have, I mean, what do you know about any any diet that the American Heart Association has or the American College of Cardiology? What, what do you know about any diet that they have recommended that can halt and reverse heart disease? Have you ever heard of it? No. Isn't that a bit of a problem or a mistake? Why should you have these leading organizations? Do you ever see who's funding them? Always seems to come down to money. Mm. But too often it comes down to money. But I'm I'm still very uh, optimistic that in the long run, the science will prevail and uh, and these organizations will have to take a leadership position. Instead of telling a cardiologist what drugs to use. Yeah, well, I mean, how long can they keep sort of receiving funds and and not giving the best nutrition advice you know, mm-hmm. how, how long how long can that last right well it's lasted quite a while so far yeah so you are you are you optimistic like from, from your experience now having joined that group how, do you feel like changes are on the horizon there it's going to be a question of will will and the ability to not worry who's who's got your back, because when a, for a group of physicians to come out and have the will and the grit and the determination to challenge these leading medical organizations, because suppose it would suppose the American College of Cardiology, suppose the American Heart Association suddenly came out forcibly with all their ammunition, with all of their educational possibility, and said unequivocally, if we're gonna stop this disease and we're gonna arrest it and reverse it, we want people to know the way to do this is fully plant-based. Can you imagine what the meat industry and the dairy industry and the oil industry and the nut industry are gonna say? So it's- uh, well, They're not gonna be happy, but they're not gonna, they've had a good run. Yeah, they've had a good run. So we'll, well, we'll, see, what ha- we'll see what happens, yeah. And you know, no doubt, documentaries and, and speaking at events like you do, but documentaries like Forks Over Knives, which you were in, these these types of things are a good way of of helping raise awareness. Yeah. Oh, no, no question. I think uh, Forks Over Knives did an immensely yeah. powerful job of educating more so than anything I can mm-hmm. think of in the recent past. And perhaps that's another way it should be done. But suppose you could get it into schools where kids would be going to educate. Maybe suppose a fourth grader came back or a fifth grader came back home and said, mom and dad, I, I learned in school today why it was that grandpa died from his heart attack. Yeah, get the kids teaching the what? parents. Yeah. Yeah, the ground up. I actually had dinner with um with Brian Wendell, producer of Forks oh, yeah. Overnights the yeah. other night. Oh, yeah. He, a couple of nights ago. 
He spoke, he spoke very fondly about you. I said that was coming here. <laughs> Do you ever stop and think about the effect that your work and, and everything that your family is doing and has had on, on human health and, and planetary health and, and I guess the, the legacy that you, you're creating and will one day leave? You don't ever, you know, you don't ever think about it. You just think about the next day. What what's on the platter? What you're gonna what you're gonna be doing? And if it includes uh, another presentation or if another article, uh, uh, whatever you you know, you aren't writing them. You know, always with with a. You're not writing with a, with a legacy in mind. You're writing with the the immediacy of of how we can get this accomplished. For instance, I just. Uh, I never thought I'd be still writing, trying to write a science paper at my age, but I, I just submitted an article to the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention on, uh, and the title of the paper was, Is Oil Healthy? And it was published. Wow. When was that published? I think two months ago. Two months ago. And you say, you say at this age, how old are you now? Uh, 85. Okay. I used to got a few more papers in you. <laughs> I expect at least a few more. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Esselstyn, Essie, it's been an absolute delight talking to you today. I feel I feel so privileged to be here. So thank you very much for inviting me into your home. Thank you to Anne as well. I really believe that your scientific discoveries and your overall contribution to lifestyle medicine are something that people will be talking about for as long as humans exist. And on a deeper level, because sometimes we can get lost in the minutiae of a study, your findings have handed the power back to the people. Something that I think is so, so profound and so empowering. We can really take control of our health and it starts with the food that's on our plate. So thank you for all that you've done, all that you continue to do and all that you stand for. Any final words before we close this one out? If I were to summarize uh, why uh, it's been, I just took it out the other day, it's been, uh, next year it'll be 20 years since I've retired from, from surgery. And I find myself right now more uh, enamored, excited about the field of medicine perhaps than ever before because we are at the absolute cusp of what could be a seismic revolution in health. And this seismic revolution in health will never come about with the invention of another pill, procedure, or operation. But the seismic revolution will come about when we are able to have the will and the grit and the determination to share with the public what is the lifestyle, and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them to absolutely annihilate chronic illness. If anyone would like to to connect with you and follow your journey online or perhaps reach out to you about your program, how can they do so? Well, we've got my website, and if they need to speak with me, they can always call my secretary, Jackie Fry, whose number is on on my website, and that's what uh, almost everybody seems to do. Okay. Well, I'll put all your contact <laughs> details in the show notes and <laughs> and your uh, your Instagram handle and whatnot. All right. Thanks, Essie. Thank you, Simon. Well, friends, there you go. 
Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn Jr. It really did feel special to be sitting across from an 85-year-old man that has made such enormous contribution to science and holds such wisdom. After the recording, we spoke further about how S sees changes occurring. Interestingly, he had a, a newsletter from one of his cardiology subscriptions on the table. He picked it up and said, Simon, see this here? This is the problem. He opened it up and pointed to a section on the left-hand side that said, lifestyle recommendations, and pointed to a single line that advised for patients to eat a healthier diet. What on earth does that mean? It's terribly challenging and frustrating when associations or newsletters like these use throwaway lines. Even at the end of scientific papers, you often see the vague conclusion of lifestyle modifications, including diet, would be recommended. Nobody knows what that means. It's too vague. We have the science to show what a healthy diet looks like. For the number one cause of death, which just happens to be the same diet that significantly reduces one's chance of developing type 2 diabetes obesity, hypertension, many cancers, and other chronic illnesses. So if you're wondering why meat, yogurt, and cheese is often on these associations' websites in their recommended eating section, that's why. As long as the major health associations are being funded by animal agriculture and pharmaceutical bodies, such recommendations will not happen. It's as simple as that. Luckily, we have some podcasts, books, and and other media now that are not accepting money from animal agriculture. And as a result, you can see the trend. These industries are mostly in decline. Investors are jumping off and looking to plant-based and sustainability-focused companies to invest in. This is where it comes back to voting with your dollar. If you keep supporting plant-based foods, you are indirectly helping to decrease the power that animal ag have. And although it's sad for farmers, you're supporting a food system that is better for our planet, animal welfare, and biodiversity. And I truly hope those farmers can pivot and be financially successful using a more sustainable method of farming. Hopefully one day we can get to a point where all of the large health associations are independently funded with zero industry funding. So their advice is 100% evidence-based and has the public's health as their most important interest. We also spoke about the low-carb diets and, and as he sort of shrugged his shoulders and said calmly, Simon, they've never ever been shown to prevent or reverse heart disease, our number one cause of death, and that's a fact. Finally, I asked Essie if funding was no issue, what type of study would he run? This was his response. If I had unlimited funds, I would have the most powerful, persuasive, and genuine-to-be-believed personalities on round-the-clock television, radio, and internet presentations that will clarify without any doubt the ability of whole food, plant-based nutrition to eliminate chronic illness. Essentially, Essie is adamant there is enough science and ultimately one more study isn't going to make a difference. It's about getting the message out there in the mainstream to compete with the mainstream media adverts that many industries are paying for in order to create confusion and stop behavioral change. Friends, I hope you took something out of this episode. Pretty special one. As most of you know, my book is coming out in 2020, and I certainly do talk about Essie's work in it, so it was great to be able to spend some time with him. 
If you enjoyed this episode, both myself and Essie would love to hear from you. Please share your feedback on social media and tag us or send us a direct message. Finally, if you haven't left a review for the show on iTunes and have a spare minute, it would be greatly appreciated. That's it for today, friends. I'll catch you in the next episode.